Hello, and thanks for joining us for the Education Doctor Radio Show. I'm your host, Dr. Pamela Ellis. The Education Doctor Radio Show is your family source for educational excellence. Our program is brought to you by Compass Education Strategies, where I'm the principal consultant, and our mantra is access, thrive, graduate. You can learn more about our firm at compasseducationstrategies.com. Thanks so much to everyone who is listening to our show today. We appreciate you taking the time to listen in. If you are listening to a podcast of this program, we also want to thank you for joining us. For future show updates and ongoing relevant education news, please join our Facebook community by searching for The Education Doctor, then clicking like. You can find us on Twitter at The Education Doc. We are also on Foursquare, where you can see our tips to prep schools, colleges, and graduate schools around the country. In my practice, I speak with families every day about what is happening in school, report cards, or just casual learning situations even. A few years ago, I started hearing more from families about learning differences. And in my experiences of working with schools directly, there was a lot of talk about how to support students in special education. And the term IEP, which stands for Individualized Education Plan, was often mentioned in these discussions. In a very enlightening conversation with the family in Boston, they noted the value of having a neuropsychological evaluation for their daughter. The way they described it to me was that they learned some things about certain learning differences that she had that they would not have found out about otherwise. And you know how it goes. When you start to hear something once, you start to hear it in other settings as well. And so on another occasion, when I was at a conference for the Independent Educational Consultant Association, a workshop presenter discussed the use of neuropsychological evaluation for the purpose of SAT or ACT accommodations. And fast forward into college, when students are armed with this kind of information, they can be better self-advocates for their learning experience in college. And so during this conference situation, we were talking about just the different benefits, if you will, to these neuropsychological evaluations. And as I state in each of my podcasts, this show is about helping families to be strategic and intentional in their educational success. So joining me today is Dr. Julie Miller of the Wallace Kettering Neuroscience Institute within the Kettering Medical Center here in Dayton, Ohio. We're going to talk today with Dr. Miller about neuropsychological evaluations, what they are, what they aren't, and how families can benefit by knowing more about them. So Dr. Miller is a board certified in clinical neuropsychology with the American Board of Professional Psychology. She received her Bachelor of Arts degree in psychology from Ohio Wesleyan, and obtained a Master of Education degree from Ohio University. 
She received her doctorate in clinical psychology from the Adler School of Professional Psychology in Chicago, where she specialized in clinical neuropsychology. Dr. Miller has been with the Wallace Kettering Neuroscience Institute for the past six years, and she she holds an academic rank of assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Wright State University's Boone Shaw School of Medicine and is a member of several international and national associations. So we are delighted to have her on our show today. Before we start, I want to make sure that our listeners have our contact information if they'd like to reach us. Our email address is radio at compasseducationstrategies.com if you'd like to submit a question either today or sometime later when you think about this program a little bit more and what was discussed. You can also reach us through our switchboard, which is 714-333-3356. And although I give that number out in each podcast, inevitably I have callers who will email, but they won't call in, and that's fine too. I will also state that our switchboard is located in sunny Southern California, but Dr. Miller and I are broadcasting live from Dayton, Ohio. So we'll take a quick break, and then we will return with Dr. Julie Miller. This is the Education Doctor Radio Show, brought to you by Compass Education Strategies, and I am back now to talk with Dr. Julie Miller of the Wallace Kettering Neuroscience Institute within the Kettering Medical Center here in Dayton, Ohio. Dr. Miller, are you on the call now? Yes, I am. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Education Doctor Radio Show. How are you doing today? I'm doing quite well. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thank you. Thank you for joining. Right before the show, you mentioned that you have (laughs) two young ones, a toddler and an infant. And so I especially thank you for joining because I know you're probably a little bit sleep deprived. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) Yes, so thank you so much. We appreciate your time. So, Dr. Miller, I wanted to just start out by just giving our families a frame of reference and asking if you can tell us a little bit about just what does neuropsychology mean? Can you describe that for us? Oh, sure. That's a great question and a good place to start. Neuropsychology is a clinical specialty within psychology that is concerned with the cognitive, behavioral, and emotional problems that can sometimes arise from um, known or suspected brain dysfunction or altered development. Mm, Okay. Okay. Now, when families are thinking about perhaps getting this type of assessment, what should they know about how to find someone who's qualified to do this? Um, Another great question. Um, A neuropsychologist has a doctoral degree in psychology. It can be clinical psychology or sometimes neuropsychology itself. Um, A doctoral Mm -hmm. degree could be a Ph.D., Doctor of Philosophy, 
or a PsyD, like my degree, which is a doctorate, a doctorate of psychology. Um, during the process of the clinical psychology training, neuropsychologists um, complete specialized coursework in brain and behavior relationships, and um, as well as anatomy and physiology of the brain and its effects on behavior. Um, beyond the typical PhD or PsyD program, after completing an internship and graduating with your doctorate, you uh, complete a two-year fellowship in neuropsychology, and from there you can specialize in child or adult. Um, and after okay. that is finished, you're able to take a, a board exam to, to demonstrate your competence in the, within the field. Okay. So, okay, good. Yeah. Were you going to say so something else? Yeah, I was going to say, so parents want to make sure that they're looking for a doctoral-level psychologist who is appropriately licensed in their state where they're practicing. Okay. So, Dr. Miller, I want to start by just asking, what are some of the times that families may seek a neuropsychological evaluation? Probably the most common or frequent time that a parent will seek such an evaluation is when their school-aged child is experiencing difficulties within the learning environment and there isn't a clear or readily available explanation for the learning challenges. Mm, okay. Now, I know one of the things, one of the questions that does come up from some of my families is what is the difference between a neuropsychological evaluation or an evaluation that's done at school? Um, school assessments are usually performed uh, in order to determine whether a child qualifies for special education services or programs or for therapies mm -hmm. offered through the school system, such as speech and language therapy or occupational therapy. Um, they focus more on achievement and skills that are needed for academic success um, but they do not diagnose learning or behavior disorders, um, either um, you know, psychologically related issues or medically related issues, such as children that may have experienced a medical complication during development mm. that has led to some learning challenges. So that's the primary okay. difference. Okay, very good, very good. Because I often will hear that question and I think that explains it very well, so I have to point them to this podcast when they have to <laughs> You said that very eloquently. Now, one of the things I will say in terms of these evaluations is that sometimes they're covered by insurance in terms of families can uh, have the cost of the evaluation covered by their insurance policies, correct? Yes, Okay. Depending on the reason for testing, I would say, and and also okay. depending on the specifics of the person's insurance type and plan. Mm hmm. Okay. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about just what the evaluation looks like. I mean, that's a question that I hear sometimes uh, from families: is what will this evaluation be? So can you just let us? take a sneak peek into your office, which can be just like a fly on the wall in your office. Um, tell us what's happening during this evaluation. 
Sure. A, a neuropsychological evaluation typically begins with an interview, a clinical interview that's conducted by the psychologist with the parent or parents, um, sometimes with the child present at that point and sometimes uh, without the child present, depending on the age of the child and the reason for the referral. Um, in my practice, I have a psychometrician who assists me with testing so that I can be with the parents while she is getting started with the evaluation of the child. So that's okay. usually the first hour or so spent that way. Mm-hmm. Um, from now, that, you say first hour. How long does it usually take? Um, it's an it's an investment. Um, the first hour <laughs> is the interview with the with the parent, as well as the uh-huh. uh, child being simultaneously tested. So the evaluation has begun. Um, so the child is not waiting for that to for the interview to conclude, but both are happening at the same time. And depending on the age of the child, it really dictates the length of the evaluation. So for the typical school age child, I would say six years to uh, sixteen to eighteen years. Um, it testing typically takes about six hours, maybe six a little hours. less, a little more. Yes, with breaks. Oh, wow, <laughs> and with a with a lengthy lunch break in the middle. Yeah, it, it mimics a okay, school day. Okay, this really. is longer than an SAT. <laughs> That's a, <laughs> a quite a while, yeah. quite a while. So it's almost a test of endurance and stamina. <laughs> it's an embedded attention test. No. Um, <laughs> it, it really mimics a school day because we're asking our students to it be in does. school for that length of time. So in in my practice yeah. I have the kids complete testing in one in a one day format for just that reason. I want to see what they are like during the course of a typical um you know, the length of time that would be involved in a typical school day. Okay. Okay. Now what now you talked about the first hour in terms of that being a clinical interview, either with both parents and the student together or with the student alone and you have a psychometrician who may be working with the student while you're interviewing the parents. Is the psychometrician doing some interviewing as well with the student? No, she is um, She is merely a data collector. So she is administering the test um, and recording the child's responses. And then at the end, the conclusion of the evaluation, everything is given to the psychologist for um, to check scoring and then provide all the interpretation and results, report generation and feedback. So the psychometrician really just asks the questions and records the child's response. Okay. So let's talk through the uh, other hours that are spent. So we have another five hours. What's going on in that second hour? Um I would say that the first, I would break it into two sections of testing, perhaps. So the morning Mm -hmm. session would typically consist of, um, begin with an an intellectual assessment of some type, depending, again, on the reason for the referral. But we generally assess intellectual functioning in, in most every child referred. And then we would go into other measures, such as memory and learning, um, visual spatial skills and perceptual skills, fine motor skills. We typically take a break uh, in in that morning session. The morning session may be two to three hours with one or two breaks. We really go at the pace of the child and sort of read them, see what it is that they they need. And typically that, that sounds like a long time, but typically kids do very well because it's a very structured and encouraging environment and that they feel very mm-hmm. supported and 
connected with by the psychometrician and, and with me when I spend time with them. So it, it generally is a pleasant experience, even though it sounds like a, a very long time. Yeah, yeah. And I would think, too, with um, maybe with younger students, you're doing more breaks than you may be doing with older students. How does that yeah. usually? Okay. Yeah. okay. And the younger, you know, six- or seven-year-olds are are typically not here six hours. It's it's usually okay. more like four with a couple of fairly lengthy breaks. So, okay. Now, with the uh, after the morning sessions or after the lunch break that they take, what do they do after that in terms of what's included in the evaluation? Hmm. They return to the the testing room either with the psychometrician that began with them in the morning, or they're with me at that point, um, depending on where we are in the tests and um, how much we've accomplished in the morning session. And we continue with the assessment. Typically, by that point, we have completed um, a good portion of the tests, and then we've mo- we're moving on to other skills, uh, assessment of other skills, such as academic achievement um, and higher level or executive skills like problem-solving, planning, reasoning, and judgment, as well as measures of attention, which are uh, given throughout the evaluation. Mm-hmm. So we okay. typically conclude with those tests and then, um, you know, of course, walk the child out, and we schedule a follow-up appointment to review the results mm-hmm. with the family. Okay. Now, a couple of things that you touched on is you did talk about the intellectual assessment learning as well as academic. How what do those tests look like? Are you actually having students do something with pen and paper to get a sense for those mm-hmm. abilities? Some of the the tests well all all of our tests involve multiple subtests and within the subtests mm-hmm. there are different modalities of administration. So some tasks are paper and pencil. Um, some are where the child is looking at, let's say, a picture and finding uh, pictures or designs that match each other or go together or are categories together. Um, they're looking at designs and symbols and um, other sorts of visually engaging tasks. And then others are more hands-on and involve some combination of manipulating objects, uh, mm-hmm. sometimes under time demand and sometimes without the pressure of time added, depending on what we're mm-hmm. assessing. Academic testing really does tend to be paper and pencil driven, or the child will give an oral or verbal response to a question posed by the examiner. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Now, you mentioned that you are testing for attention throughout. What does that look like? And so if we're a fly on the wall watching this happening, how will we know when you're testing for attention? Our attention measures really range from um, more structured assessments of attention where the child may be asked to focus on one task um, at a time to where they're asked to divide their attention across more than one task simultaneously. Other tests of attention may be computer-administered where they are asked to sustain their focus and their vigilance for several minutes and beyond. 
to see if they can, let's say, stay with a task that becomes repetitive. Um, can they keep themselves focused even in the face mm-hmm. of temptation to stop focusing? Um, and then another yeah. form of attention testing is more informal where we are observing the child throughout the day and throughout our interaction with them to see whether they are visibly distracted. What can we notice about them? Are they distracted by objects around them? Are they excessively fidgety or are they fidgety to a developmentally appropriate degree? Um, are they distracted by their own thoughts? Can they maintain a conversation without a lot of um, going on to tangents and um, needing to speak excessively about ideas that pop into their mind or experiences that they'd like to share with us? So there are some formal measures and some informal observational measures of attention. Okay. I want to pause right here because I'd like to just take a quick break to get some water. (laughs) And so I am going to take a quick break right here, and then we'll come back with Dr. Julie Miller to continue our conversation about neuropsychological evaluations. Be right back. Okay, we are back now to continue our conversation with Dr. Julie Miller of the Wallace Kettering Neuroscience Institute within the Kettering Medical Center in Dayton, Ohio. Dr. Miller, I wanted to continue our conversation regarding the what's happening when the evaluations are being done. And one of the questions that came to mind before the break was, how do you know if students are faking in any way? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, that's a, that's definitely a concern and an issue that in the past was believed to only require attention from adult practitioners, those dealing with and assessing adults for you know various um, various issues and, and perhaps legal related issues. Now we know that children are certainly capable of either feigning. Um, you know, a, an issue or a symptom or condition for for a secondary reason, um, or for you know just not giving full effort during an assessment for for whatever reason. So we do have effort measures um, that we can administer if we suspect that a child is perhaps not giving their full effort. I'd have to say, in defense of children everywhere, that children do tend to give good effort almost all of the time, um, at least in the, the situations that I see. Kids are pretty easy to encourage. They they really want to do well and will work right. to do well. And when they're not, you can tell in a lot of cases that, that this child maybe needs some encouragement or needs us to assess their effort in a more formal way. Okay. Okay, good. Now, one of the things that I've heard, um, I've read recently, is that um, this these learning differences can sometimes be genetic, meaning that Absolutely. they are passed down. Um, can you say a little bit more about that? Because I know that lately more parents have started to get testing because certain results uh, have been found in their children. Can you address that just briefly? Absolutely. Sure. That's absolutely right. There is certainly more recent uh, evidence and research that's coming forward that, that does say there's a high um, heritability or risk for transmitting genes that are um, affected across generations regarding learning ability as well as attention-based disorders can be quite heritable. Um, So it's not uncommon for me to 
be meeting with a family to perhaps diagnose a learning or attention disorder and find that in the course of describing the child's performance, the parent can quickly relate to the child, almost as if I were describing that very person, that that parent during their own childhood. Um, Mm -hmm. And that can often prompt them to seek an evaluation of their own to to try and get some answers for why they perhaps were struggling in a certain academic area, uh, such as reading. Mm -hmm. Reading and spelling disorders are very um, heritable, as well as attention-based disorders. Really. Now, when you say attention-based, can you um, expand on that a little bit more? Because I think there's often some misunderstandings around attention-based disorders, Mm -hmm. just in terms of the differences and how you would define them. Sure. Um, Children, when you're talking about attention deficit disorder, there's, of course, the ADHD, which is um, pretty um, heard of and well-known in the general population uh, and perhaps maybe uh, overdiagnosed, perhaps. There's been somewhat of an explosion in that diagnosis in the past 10 years, um, partly because we're giving it more um, of our focus and our attention to to try and find these cases so we can intervene early. Mm-hmm. So certainly ADHD is the primary attention disorder that is most discussed and talked about. But um, in addition to that, many childhood uh, illnesses or medical conditions can produce difficulty with attention that is first and foremost observed in the school setting where a child is being asked to sit and attend for relatively lengthy periods of time. So, uh, for example, kids with epilepsy or seizures um, as well as other neurodevelopmental medical issues, can present with attention-based disruptions that do not stem from classic or you know inherited ADHD, for example. So mm-hmm. part of neuropsychological evaluation is determining how attention fits into the broader picture of the child's uh, strengths and challenges. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, what is um, we're coming up to the close of our show and. What do you? What would you want to leave parents with in terms of uh, what they should know about um, these evaluations and the results of their evaluations? Well, um, the first thing that comes to mind is you know I would want parents to be in a position to take a, a proactive approach to their child's education and to. Mm-hmm be very involved in school meetings that they attend, uh, you know, from just parent-teacher conferences to more intensive meetings where perhaps the school has called an intervention-based meeting because of their concerns or parent concerns, and to really, you know, take an active active role in participating in that process because these are team decisions, meaning the educators and the parents need to agree and work together to benefit the child as as well as they can in the school setting. So be proactive mm-hmm. and seek an outside evaluation if you're not satisfied with the school's conclusions or perhaps you just want additional information that could help the school as well as the parents um, provide adequate services to the child. And don't be afraid to ask for, for that. Um, Secondly, I, I guess I um, would say, um, you know, if an evaluation is sought from a, a private provider, make sure that you fully understand what the results mean and that the report that you're given that explains the results is written in a manner that is clear and that you fully understand or 
understand very well so that you may advocate for your child because parents really are the their children's primary advocate. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Miller, for joining us. We appreciate your time and hope that you get some more sleep <laughs> in the upcoming <laughs> months, even if that's not too forthcoming. Um, we we do wish you well, and thank you so much for joining us today on the Education okay. Doctor Radio Show. Thank you. thank you. So this wraps up our show for today with Dr. Julie Miller of the Wallace Kettering Neuroscience Institute within the Kettering Medical Center. Um, thank you so much for joining us. We have some great shows coming up for you on the Education Doctor Radio, and we'll continue to bring you information that's both strategic and practical for educational success. Please listen to our announcement on how you can stay connected with us. 